0: My name is Kasia Krzyżanowska, I'm the RevTEM editor, and I'm joined today by Massimo Fichera, who is an associate professor in philosophy of law at the Department of Foundations of Law at Maastricht University, and he has recently published a book, The EU and Constitutional Time, The Significance of Time in Constitutional Change. And we will talk about this book today, so welcome Massimo
1: very much. I think it's a great opportunity for me so to to talk about my work. So thanks a lot for inviting me.
0: Thanks for coming. So let's go directly into the questions about your book. So the premise of your book is that we are witnessing the growing interconnectedness of domestic legal orders with constitutionalism beyond the state. And it would also seem that European integration will go really smoothly from that moment on. As you write, we are experiencing now the most advanced state of EU integration. But at the same time, there is a huge, sometimes named as populist, backlash against international institutions and organizations. So, how would you explain this paradox? Uh,
1: Well, essentially, the starting point of my analysis is that um, nowadays we cannot talk about constitutionalism without having to deal with legal developments beyond the state. We have to somehow look at them. Um, And this means that we are also pushed uh, in a direction of um, re-elaborating or challenging elements of constitutionalism, which we knew before in a new context. And So um, I think that European integration is characterised has been characterized by a steadfast growth in recent decades, and this more or less in correspondence with the turn of, turn of the century. Uh, also, at the same time, undeniably we are uh, witnessing a powerful dynamic against this, uh, this, this trend. And it, it's, this is a dynamic that, which I, I think it should be borne in mind, is present not only in Europe, but also in other areas of the world. So it's not just something we find in Europe. Um, This should not surprise us, I think, because in my view, the emergence of conflicts and contradictions is an inherent feature of constitutionalism. So in a sense, in a sense, it could also be considered a positive development because it is precisely because the EU has reached an advanced stage of integration, as you said, ever more complex, ever more multilayered, that such a state of affairs becomes more pronounced. Um, and the problem arises not from the presence of conflicts and contradictions, but from the fact, I think, that they have been ignored or belittled for too long. And so I think that the moment has, be- has come from the EU to address conflict openly. Um, so the European Union's Effort to appear as a neutral machinery, as uh, something that is detached from, from, from conflicts, as undermined, in my view, is the true strength of the European project, uh, that, that, that is namely its configuration primarily as a political project, not just as a legal project. So it is necessary for the European liberal project to shed its veneer of neutrality and adopt a clear political morality. So this means bring its aims out in the open. So the debate is possible. So in in other words, what I mean is that the EU's strength, it lies in realizing autonomy in a socially integrated space. And relatedly, um, the claims and needs expressed by um, so-called populist movements uh, should not be dismissed too easily as a stubborn obstacle to the integration agenda, but they should somehow to be taken seriously for the process of constitutionalization in the EU, by understanding in the first place, the deeper reasons behind them.
0: So one of the reasons behind the populist backlash, you mentioned that uh, the liberal European um, overview does not take the problem of the future seriously. It does not focus, it focuses too narrowly on the present times. So um, my question or The counter argument could be that uh, the liberal EU leaders actually take into account the future by coming up with some policies regarding the climate change, first and foremost, so what will be your um, take on that?
1: I think that contemporary liberalism has become too presentist, that's one of the definitions, the term I use, because it is exceedingly focused on the demands of the present. So it it takes economic growth for granted, without considering um, either its broader implications, which are not strictly economic, but also cultural, social and so on, um, or the possibility that growth itself comes to a halt. So, I try to propose an alternative scenario here uh, in which um, what I call precisely communal constitutionalism goes beyond the liberal of uh, the classic liberal mind frame so in, in this scenario first of all, the idea is that all actors of the process of integration do not merely cooperate because this only means getting together to pursue one's own enlightened interest as it were but they actually come together to constitute something new. And so to go back to the root of the word constitutional means constituer, so to set up together. Um, and this is done in the common interest. So the notion of communal constitutions relies on the shift from reciprocity, which is based on tifotat, essentially, to mutuality, which requires something more than the mere sum of individual interest. Um, secondly, um, not only classic institutions such as court, executives, legislatures, but also sub-state components, for example, regions and cities, um, as well as other non-state bodies such as grassroots movements, NGOs, political parties, and other forms of collective participation in public matters, uh, including private actors acting in a public interest. So all of these play a significant role, I should play at least. A significant role. So what I mean is that communal constitutionalism implies the coexistence of a plurality of normative orders and sites of decision-making, and it attempts to reconcile constitutionalism and democracy in a transnational domain by envisioning forms of of deliberation that Uh, take place at all levels of society, and this approach therefore seeks to integrate unity and plurality by um, devising a bridge between some versions of deliberative constitutionalism and some versions of constitutional pluralism, in particular those which place special emphasis on epistemic pluralism. So local levels in this this sense, local levels of decision making are supposed to be enhanced. and then, thirdly, I would add an important element of communal constitutionalism is the emphasis on what I call the temporal dimension of security. Now, what does this mean? Now, here, I'd like to clarify that by security, as I've argued in my previous book, book before this one, which is the foundations of opinion as a, as, as a polity, uh, I do not mean the traditional definition of security as a good provided. By a political community to its citizens, uh, nor do I refer to specific instantiations of it, such as military security or criminal security, or even phenomena such as securitization. Rather, my intention is to focus on the security of a constitutional settlement. So, in some respect, this notion recalls the idea of stability. Uh, which can be mostly associated with ancient constitutional thoughts, such as Plato, Aristotle, um, who we, we, we in the past were we considered, so ancient thinkers, who considered the conditions that ensure the endurance or persistence of a regime over time. Uh, but in my understanding, security has a more existential connotation, because it can be viewed as a sort of Meta constitutional rational as a political morality that underpins a constitutional settlement. So, actually, going to the etymology again of the term constitution, uh, it can be also reconnected with the medieval metaphor of the health of the body politic. So, and it is not actually by chance that the word constitution in the past was very often used also to indicate the general health of a person, the so physical health of a person. So, Through this concept concept of security, I claim that the importance of Europe is not expressed simply by the need to develop shared values uh, and established legal procedures to enforce them, which some would connect or associate with the idea of integration through law, uh, but also by the urge to ensure that these values are protected over an extended period of time. in my previous book, I also distinguished between six dimensions of security, which I call spatial, temporal, popular, ontological, epistemic, and reflexive. Now, in this book, I focus on the precisely on the temporal dimension of security, um, um, and I continue to talk that line of argument. And I therefore uh, clarify that an additional feature of communal constitutionalism is the incorporation of future. Of the future in the processes of constitution making and amending with a view to promoting also the role of future generations. and uh, That's why, for example, an issue like climate change is very important in this in this respect. So and, and not, not only that, but also the economic components of European integration should be seen should no longer be viewed as prevailing over the social components. Um, and this means that what I Set up is a partial critique of the current liberal model of integration, as I said before as well. Because, that, in this sense, of course, uh, what I propose could be somehow considered similar to other critiques of the liberal model which have been uh, presented recently. Um, for example, I could mention. Common good constitutionalism, or Martin Loughlin's idea, book uh, the book against constitutionalism. Now, uh, that is very interesting because they certainly offer interesting uh, examples of reflection on what is currently going on. But um, I think that both of them can be looked at uh, through the prism of constitutional time. Now, on the other hand, for example, com- common good constitutionalism. Advocates a return to a legitimating, binding source, which is situated far back in the past, uh, w- in, which is essentially the classical principles of natural law. Yeah, so, but this also means that that type of constitution is is marked by the inability, I, I, I think, to allow a negotiation, reinterpretation of the founding values of a polity by the collectivity over time. Uh, um, I, actually. In particular, the ideas of reason and reasoned ordination, which are at the basis of natural law in this sense, are placed outside any possible contestation, in the debate, and in general deliberation. On the other hand, the uh, notion of Loughlin, uh, the approach followed by Loughlin, I think, remains encapsulated. It is definitely very interesting, definitely a source of of, of inspiration, but it is, I think, also encapsulated within a a statist framework and reproduces a paradigm, which it it might be useful in some respects to unmask certain destabilizing processes of constitution arm making. But it is also conditioned by the, that very paradigm that it relies on, and it overemphasizes the role of elections, something that happens at a given moment in time, without looking at other moments of deliberation, in which constituent power can still uh, emerge after the original act of generation of a constitutional community. So. I think that majority rule, rule, uh, it is definitely important, but should not be seen as the main legitimizing factor of constitutional democracies, or there are these other factors, because electoral moments are fleeting events. They simply provide a snapshot of a, a lifetime of a liberal democracy, at some moment in time. But uh, th- th- that means also that they reveal partial truths, not the whole truth about a liberal democracy. There are also other moments of social confrontation which we need to rely on to have a bigger picture of a politics constitutional time. Because this picture is not static, but it's always in movement. So, in, in other words, ultimately, what I believe is that democracy offers a promise in the present. But constitutionalism uh, project us towards the future. And not, not just that, but I think that um, democracies um, function better when when uh, there is also a, somehow a way of managing conflictuality. Um, Kelsen itself, in his works on democracy, uh, I, I claimed that um, conflictuality itself preserves democracy when it is manifested explicitly and it is regulated through a process that leaves the outcome open and leaves the possibility for every majority to prevail every time and minorities not to be somehow uh, overcome. Um, So I I definitely look at this aspect of Kelsen's uh, thoughts. I also look at... Uh, the idea of mixed constitution, for example, ancient idea, which was elaborated again in uh, ancient philosophy, um, according to which it, was, it, was, it is possible to combine democratic and monarchic elements in the same polity, um, and to avoid the degeneration of the polity itself. Uh, so for example, Plato and Aristotle, were convinced there's some form of economic and status equality would announce solidarity among classes, and even Aristotle, of course, related to his, his own time, proposed some uh, uh, mechanism of income redistribution, um, um, and his ideas were actually reproduced by the founding fathers of the United States Constitution to uh, elaborate a constitutionally limited democracy in which, again, aristocratic and democratic elements would somehow coexist. Um, so. What comes out of these reflections is ultimately that um, it is only possible for constitution to survive for a long time if there are somehow constraints in the will of the people uh, through some version of the rule of law. Um, uh, So precious ideas can be taken from both sides, I think, and... uh, Constitutionalism can also be seen not only from a liberal perspective, but also from another perspective which claims that it is not just about restraining power, but also about enabling social and economic uh, conditions to be set up by power. Um, uh, um, So why is constitutional time relevant for this constellation? And here I propose to oppose the concept of perpetuity with the concept of eternity. So eternity is associated with fixed and immutable concepts, but perpetuity is instead result of a reflexive and self-amending process. So maybe uh,
0: maybe uh, the moment where I yeah. can stop you and ask about yeah. some concrete uh, things about your theory. Uh, it's it's been a tour through the whole legal philosophy in your um, one one. Uh, intervention. So let me ask about how to, um, perhaps this will be a very classic question of of constitutionalism, Uh, how can the tension between the needs to actualize the constitutional content according to the needs of the contemporary people, how can it be reconciled with preserving an epistemic core of the constitution? And what actually is the epistemic core in the EU context and how can we methodologically determine what values and principles are amendable and which are not?
1: Yes, precisely. This actually ties up with my with my argument because I think that um, collective commitment, so a commitment by polity can only or can can only be truly verified across a timeline. So, um, a constitutional community needs to somehow differentiate itself from other non-constitutional community by developing a narrative. And narratives, by definition, can only develop over time. So in order to legitimate itself over time, a community must create a distinction between past, present, and future. Um, So how does this happen? So, How to actualize this? Now, I believe that um, what emerges here is what I call the parad- paradox of large time. And here, this is a neologism I uh, use in German. Actually, I use the term Crosszeit, um, uh, which is the temporal equivalent of the concept of Kost harm used by Karschmidt. But of course, I don't follow Karschmidt's theory. What I claim is that this uh, is a paradox. This emerges from the effort that every constitutional community uh, um, makes. To extend its duration as much as possible, and ideally to the point of reaching unlimited duration. Actually, this can be seen in the European Union. You see it in the preamble of the treaties, and in much, of, in, in some of this case law, the, the definition of community unlimited duration. Now, this means that EU has this ambition to preserve itself unlimited over time, um, but. This also generates what I, I say precisely the paradox. The paradox comes from this fact, the fact that um, the ambition of a constitutional project to stretch indefinitely into the future takes place either in the, same of set, in, in the name of a set of values defined once and for all at a fixed moment in time, hence binding all future generations um, belonging to the coming communities. Um, um, but if this happens, this also means compromising the democratic credential of a constitutional uh, project. Um, uh, or, on the other hand, what can happen is that we can decide that instead of having one commitment once and for all, we can decide that constitution changes frequently every you know, couple of decades or maybe 10, 19 years, like Uh, Thomas Jefferson proposed for example um, one of the founding fathers of the United States Constitution but if we do so we also somehow relinquish the idea of having a commitment that stands uh, over time. So how to solve this paradox? I claim that constitutionalism can only be reconciled with democracy if the past is not fixed once and for all, but is represented over and over again. It's never identical itself, but is always projected into the future. So when this happens, uh, we have precisely, as I said before, perpetuity and not eternity. So we emphasize a constant process of will formation and re-negotiation of values, which keeps the constituting process epistemically open-ended. And that's why I talk about different forms of time, not only linear time, but also cyclical time, and other ideas cyclical time is you know, precisely of something that recurs over time, that enables reflection over time. Thank
0: you. So this is also the moment to ask about the discursive constituent power, which you devote some place in your book. So how does it operate within European Union? Because you state that this power does not reside within any specific actor. So it's not the constitutional court of the European Union. These are not the elitist people or officials of the EU, but it is rather present in the discourses on the European Union. In this meaning, constituent power operates within the polity and not outside of it or above it. So, could you concretize uh, a bit? Um, what do you mean by this discursive constituent power, and how do you deal with the lack of European demos?
1: Thank you for this question. Actually, this goes. This is one of my central arguments, and um, so uh, yeah, the role of discursive constituent power is that uh, allowing this renegotiation of values. Um, so, in a sense, I claim that we find two discourses, what I call discourses of power within the European Union, and they are, they are the discourses of security and rights. Now, what are these discourses? Um, I claim that the EU legal order, on the one hand, empowers individuals, and this is the rights discourse, and we find these starting from the famous Van Hende Laws case, yeah? empowering individuals, conferring rights of individuals. Um, on the other hand, I claim uh, the EU legal order empowers itself, and that's the security discourse, uh, security as self-empowerment in a sense. And that, that we see, for example, in Costa vs. Hennel case, well, um, the idea of uh, um, supremacy um, or primacy, Uh, depending on how we want to interpret this notion. Um, So, on one hand, the European Union puts forward its uh, triple claim of autonomy, authority, and legitimacy through self-empowerment, and that's the security discourse. But on the other hand, it also allows to protect, emancipate, and empower individuals, and that is the rights discourse. Um, And These discourses have been, I think, constitutive of the European project at a foundational level. Uh, although they are also characterized by ambiguities and contradictions, again, so by legal-political conflict. Um, and these discourses, I mean, I think, can be traced back traced back not only to the early days of European integration, like I just mentioned some examples, and not just in the case law, but also in official documents of the EU. For example, uh, the famous speech by Mario Draghi in 2012, um, uh, where he said, well, the, the well, the European Central Bank will do whatever it takes to preserve a union. Again, that's, for me, a security discourse, an idea your an self-empowerment and self-preservation. Uh, but we can also find it in uh, uh, scholarly works. I, I think many of the uh, theories of constitutionalism, which we have found over the decades, are inspired by this idea of ensuring the survival of the EU policy. If you look at some of the works by, for example, Kellerman or even Leonard's or even some of the constitutional pluralist work. If you really look and read between lines, you see this concern for the survival of the European project. Now, what, 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 in this sense, what is the role, of, again, of discursive constitutional power? I think in this sense, courts definitely play an important role. Uh, and i just give you examples of some of the landmark judgments Uh, that have actually been so constitutive of the European project. Um, But not just courts, again, but also other actors are important. So these these discourses run through the whole polity, and we find them also in uh, the Commission, the Council, but we also find them in other layers of society. As I mentioned before, there are different layers of society uh, in which uh, European integration takes place. Um, So... In this sense, um, I think what is important, however, this, this cor- is, is that we keep these discourses open, so not self-referential, uh, not discourses that refer just to the European Union, but that open up a debate between these different actors. Um, in this sense, the recent experience of the Conference for the Future of Europe, I think it's should be at least potentially be considered as an example of this. Uh, for example, the European Citizens Panel uh, can be seen as uh, constituting a form of mini-publics which uh, allow deliberation between institutions, civil society and academics on the in, in, in a debate on the future of Europe. Um, and so I think that this is a, a central concept to be taken into account. Yeah. So
0: let me move to another point uh, that you also discuss in your book, Because on the one hand, the EU is blamed for being too socialist and morally progressive, but on the other hand, it is blamed equally for opposing its neoliberal austerity measures. You already mentioned Mario Draghi in his discourse. So what kind of lesson do you draw from the criticism of the EU? And how do you conceive the future of the European project in constitutionalism terms? And what kind of tensions will mark this future? and actually why these disharmonies would surely appear.
1: Yeah, yeah, that is what I claim. Um, It seems that the EU has become an easy target for domestic political parties because it it is depicted either as a tool of the liberal socialist elite to force, um, to use a contemporary term, a work agenda on issues such as gender, immigration, environment, and so on or as is depicted as a capitalist Leviathan, so planning to erase welfare policies across the continent. It's quite quite ironic that we have have these two representations. Um, I think this is too often um, the outcome of a shallow debate um, that takes place, and actually the media have their part in this, in promoting this shallow debate. And this is, I think, one more reason why a more developed European public sphere would be beneficial in the long term. Um, and again, as I said before, Europe needs a narrative, and a narrative implies a continuum between past, present, and future. And um, now, in this sense, uh, I think it's quite emblematic to take one, to focus on one example that I mentioned briefly in the book, and that is the famous case. Uh, I hope I pronounce it properly, Zhezlik, something like that. Yeah, the, the citizenship case. Um,
0: yes. Okay,
1: so um, so what do we see in that case? Um, we see the famous statement by the Court of Justice on that union citizenship is destined to be a fundamental state, the fundamental status of nationals uh, of the member states. Now, here again, we have an element of the future. I was talking about the future before. So there is a strong ambition in this statement. A promise that is made. And yet at the same time, we all know that citizenship law is marked by contradictions and ambiguities, which risk turning this statement itself into empty rhetoric. So I think instead, in order for you to retain its projectuality, so a direction, a, a path to be followed, must be indicated. So it it doesn't necessarily need to be a crystal clear plan, because uh, as I said before, tension and disharmony are inevitable in any constitutional project, but at least some common guidelines should be part of the conversation. Not just that, but if we are truly honest about encouraging deliberation, we must take into account the question whether or not future generations ought to be included in our deliberation. So. in, issue, in, in such issues as environment, again, digital governance, global health, and so on and so on, we need to say, incorporate deliberation—sorry, uh, future generation—in in one way or another in our discussions, um, because um, we some, somehow need to act on their behalf, because we are—they have an interest in what we are deciding right now. But at the same time, we we'll say even more as I uh, clarify in the book, we have an interest in whatever is done by them in the future because we have also some interest in our own children and children's children. So there's a mutuality here between what we do now and what they will do in in, in the future. Um, So that's also part of my claim.
0: And you mentioned these ambiguities and tensions, which are obviously inherent to the European project. So perhaps this is a good moment to talk about another point of uh, tension that is now produced in the European Union, so the rule of law. So my question would be, how do you envisage the observance of the rule of law on the European level, European Union level? So in this transnational sphere... What kind of rule of law should be observed here? here Because we deal with the claims that there are so many different approaches to the the rule of law, national approaches, that you cannot actually go with one definition that should be observed by by every country. So what kind of a response should the European Union give in such a situation? Tolerance or rather a sanction? And also another question related to that, the um, Court of Justice has just recently came up with this principle of non-regression, which uh, tries also to preserve the state of the rule of law in member states. So, what do you think about all of these questions um, and uh, how to deal with the rule of law um, problems right now in the EU?
1: Yes, well, one of the arguments developed in the book is that Neither full negotiability of constitutional values, uh, so absolute un- unamendability of constitutional provisions, eh, 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 so neither we, you know, complete negotiability of values nor the fixed unamendability of constitutional provisions are conducive to security. Um, I think that security is also characterized by two dichotomies. One is between self-preservation and self-empowerment, and the other one is between change and permanence. Now, the non-regression clause, which we find in interpretation in the court under Article Two of the Treaty of European Union, is an example of such strains between which I mentioned before. This due dichotomy um and so actually this provision can be interpreted as a commitment to the shared values of the eu that is supposed to persist through the whole um, through, through the, whole, the whole eu membership um, but at the same time the extent to which this clause has effectively been violated and so the degree of democratic Backsliding, as we, we, we as, is, as it is uh, known, uh, is subject to contestation. So, what I mean is that the scope of what can be subject to change and what should be remain, what should remain unmodified fluctuates depending on the interpretation of such scope by the interested actors. So, analogously, the need for the opinion to protect the values enshrined in Article Two risks impairing or unduly constraining processes of constitutional amendment. At the domestic level, if it does not go hand in hand again with a process leading to the gradual incorporation of these values in society. So, I had, had, the two things have to go together. So, um, according to what I call the heterarchical paradigm, we find different legal orders coexisting with each other and trying to find some way of uh, reconciling the different claims of authority. Um, now, this um, I, I, the problem of this paradigm, which is essentially corresponds more or less with the uh, theories of constitutional pluralism, is that uh, is that how do they address the issue of rule of law? So can we have rule of law in a legal pluralist environment? Um, so what, of course. Uh, it is is definitely problematic. Um, I think the discussion here is marked mostly by a positivistic understanding of the legal legal order, which views the law as as having a self-referential character uh, in which the EU law sets the condition for its own existence and validity. Um, But instead, I think what what I I, um, advocate is rather a shift from... Analysis and questions on what the European Union is, so on the nature of the opinion, which has uh, is, is so popular, uh, has been so popular in recent decades. To more the question, what for? What for do we have the opinion? Why do we have the opinion? And it is by answering that question that what comes what comes to the conclusion that um, the normative dimension of transnational integration me- needs to be emphasised, and this means thickening the idea of legal laws we should move away from a simply a simply thick thin idea to something that uh, promotes legal law more forcefully and therefore ensures enforcement and sanctions uh, as, as you said um actually in fact um I think it's some of the uh, versions of legal pluralism while departing from the Kelsenian uh, approach to legal positivism somehow also departed for me, partly. For example, in a view, I, I think he himself defined himself as, uh, as post-positivist. Um, or, for example, Matthias Kuhn's model of constitutionalism also somehow um, uh, proposes a different idea, which is not strictly positivist, but it goes more in the of Um Now, what is here to be emphasized, I think, is the uh, notion of allowing mutual deliberative engagement between the different actors, and some, again, not just courts, but also other actors in the process of integration. Um, so I think that uh, um, the opinion as a polity can only survive if um, we start from a common, an idea of commonality, as I said before, and uh, the idea of having a set or values which we all share, which we all need to preserve, and at the same time, which we are all ready to negotiate about.
0: Yeah, you mentioned a lot of uh, problems in your intervention right now. I mean, definitely I agree that we should uh, expand the pool of actors that are engaging in a dialogue about European Union and go beyond courts, uh, maybe also in some legal uh, scholarship as well. But you mentioned also that we should ask ourselves not the questions not about the nature of the European Union, but rather about its goals. So precisely my last question was regard this point. Because as you state in the book, the Maastricht Treaty clearly separated monetary policies from economic and social ones. So the monetary policies were confined to the supranational institutions, whereas the social and economic and salary policies were to be governed on the national level. And you observe that the treaty provisions oblige member states to discipline their finances, and we have seen that in the Euro crisis, and uh, not to focus on solidarity among the states and citizens. Uh, So my question would be, what kind of practical consequences for the EU you derive from such an imbalance of values or the division of competences? And how do you envision the establishment of the supranational solidarity mechanism in the social or health sector, for example?
1: Yes, precisely. So I think um, it's important to bear in mind that the the lesson that the social has a crucial role in integrating communities. I briefly mentioned this also before. Um, So why do I advocate a shift from what I call reciprocity to mutuality? as I say also before, um, because I, I advocate this shift through the concept of solidarity. So I think that both the Eurozone crisis and the coronavirus crisis have showed how the high degree of socioeconomic interdependence, which has been achieved by the European Union, makes it inevitable to ensure some, full, some form of fiscal burden sharing and mutualisation of debts in order to address critical situations that threaten the existence of the European project. Uh, so here I go back again to Aristotle's um, ethics of reciprocity. Now that idea of sharing something together is very important, definitely. But I also think that that it had some limits. It limited itself to what is good and good for in and in, for itself. Now I think instead we should move away from these ethics of reciprocity to the ethics of mutuality, uh, which has been proposed by some other more recent thinkers, such as, for example, Paul Ricoeur. Uh, so he talks about mutuality as not something simply uh, as a, 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 a dual relationship between action and response, tit uh, t- for that, as I said before, uh, but more as uh, something that is a plural relationship of, A lot of agents coming together, um, something that transcends the agents. So uh, this means that um, inevitably um, we need to include different points of view in whatever we do. Um, And this uh, means that in order for a commitment that makes the constitutional possible to make to become a collective enduring commitment. A mutuality must be present underneath as a as an implicit presupposition of a common project. Therefore, as an element, it triggers uh, motivation to come together. So the movement from reciprocity to mutuality, I think, is not a movement onwards from a less developed to a more developed form of integration, but rather a cyclical movement back to the origins, where the feature feature of mutuality is renewed time and again through deliberation. Now, being concerned for the survival of the European project in the long term, I think, means that the concern for the material constitution should be placed at the centre of the European project. This means that concern for health and uh, social security schemes, for example, or minimum uh, mobility uh, schemes as well, ha- has to be there some, uh, somehow, present already at the European level, not simply left to the state to decide. Because that's not something just uh, to be sidelined, Something you know, additional. But this is actually central for integration.
0: Absolutely. And on this note, we will end. So thank you very much, Massimo, for your time and insights. Thank
1: you very much. See you.